We've been following through the journey through the book of Exodus. So if you're just visiting this morning and with us afresh, that's where we've been. And in chapter 13, a couple of weeks ago, the one idea that we sort of saw was that God's people were called to be distinct, that they were to look and to live differently to the nations around them. But the story of Exodus is not a story about the commitment and dedication of the people of Israel to God, but of God to them. One commentator, John Mackay, says, The full extent of the Lord's power and commitment to his people has been revealed in his decisive intervention on their behalf. And that is this rescue that we pick up here in chapter 14 and we see fulfilled And this morning, the one idea I want you to take away is that Israel were called to take the freedom that God had given them. If you look there to those first nine verses, we see firstly a test of their mettle. There's firstly a troubling request from God, isn't there, in those first four verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. The people are called to double back, and that seemingly makes no sense at all, does it? And it's going to meet, surely, with a predictable end. Verse 3 continues, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Previously, God had diverted the people from the coastlands to the mainland to avoid war with the Philistine people. And we're told that the problem wasn't that Israel weren't equipped as they went out of Egypt. They had all the equipment, but they weren't hardened enough yet to face battle. So why now, just a few verses later, is God diverting them to a place in which they will now have to confront the Egyptians. Why? It is what it looks like it is. God is luring Pharaoh in with Israel as the bait. I wonder if you've ever seen people play 4D chess. I can't play the regular version. To be honest, I can't even work out, is it 2D or 3D? I suppose it's 3D with the pieces. Uh, But anyway, I can't really play that. I'm not from this sort of part of the world where that was a a regular thing as a child. Uh, And so even looking at this 4D board kind of makes my head hurt and I can sort of feel the migraine coming back on. Uh, You have to be looking in all kind of directions at all times and playing across sort of different planes in every moment. Here, God makes a call that looks ludicrous until you realize that he's playing 4D chess whilst everyone else is just catching up. He already knows exactly how Pharaoh will respond and he has his counter in mind already. We read elsewhere in scripture of the need to trust God. Proverbs 3 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And that's true, and that's good, and that looks fantastic on a poster and on a mug. But that's hard when you're being used as bait for Pharaoh and his armies, isn't it? To really trust 
that God knows what he's doing and has a plan. But he has a plan, doesn't he? Look at verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. What's really important to see here, and we've said it before, but is that God in the Exodus was never just seeking their freedom. There was always something bigger than just freeing the people. And here we're reminded once again of some of what that is, that he wants a clear victory over Egypt and over Pharaoh, that he wants to have glory for him alone, and that he wants a very public display of his power over Pharaoh. And there's a bigger truth there in that, and it's this, that the Bible is first and foremost about God and not about you. It is about him fulfilling his plans for his ends. He's told the people this numerous times through the Exodus alone. In chapter 7, verse 5, he's told them that the Egyptians will know that he's God when he rescues Israel. Chapter 8, verse 10, that the Egyptians will know that there is no God like him through the plagues. And that they will know that he is God in Egypt as well as amongst the Israelites. In chapter 9, he's said that he's doing this so that they will know there's no other God in all the earth. And a little later, that they will know that the earth belongs to God. And in chapter 11, he's doing this that they will know that God protects his people. God was always aiming for glory over Pharaoh and for Egypt to recognize him as God alone. There's that, what seems like a troubling request, and then there's a sight that stokes Pharaoh's anger and changes his mind in verses 5 to 9, isn't there? I wonder if you've ever had seller's remorse. It's when you let go of something and you then really regret it in the end. Uh, Children do this all the time. Uh, And so, you know, they they give a lovely gift to someone else and then they completely regret it and they want to sort of take it back. And you have to say to them, well, no, look, but, you know, once you've given it as a gift, it's a gift. You can't just then take it back. Uh, But in fact, actually, you know, middle-aged men do this just as much. I sit and sort of laugh in jealousy and envy at middle-aged men who've let go of very expensive guitars and then regret it. And I laugh because I'm just jealous that I never had the thing in the first place. Uh, But there you go. the, The wheel of life goes round seller's remorse and this is a serious case of seller's remorse for the Egyptians isn't it look at verse 5 when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled perhaps he still had in his mind the bartering that he's had with Moses of saying well maybe you can go out for three days and then come back and then realizes they ain't coming back the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people and they said what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us. Rebellion leads to ruin. We've seen that before, and Egypt lies in ruins here, but it also leads to idiocy. 
It leads to a very idiotic decision that Pharaoh is going to make and a very self-destructive decision for him. But he has Salah's remorse letting go of Israel, doesn't he? But I want you to notice, look at verse 5 and then scan down at verse 8 because there's a very important combination of things going on here at the very same time. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed. Note that. And then look down just a couple of sentences below to verse 8, where it tells us, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There's that combination that they change their minds and God hardens their hearts. It's both and. It's two ways of describing what's happening at the same time. That they have changed their mind and God is hardening their hearts. That is what has been happening all along with Pharaoh, isn't it? And with the people. But look at why it is Pharaoh's so angry in verse 8. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. They were going out defiantly. The word means with a high hand or exalted or proud or celebrating. There's something about the way in which they're walking. They feel untouchable. They're walking proudly, they're celebrating, and they anger Pharaoh. You can imagine him looking on, perhaps, from the veranda out into the distance, seeing them on the horizon and seeing the celebrations. And there's something about that moment that flips a switch for Pharaoh. And he wants to get hold of him again. And yet, there's something about that reaction and attitude of Israel that's going to change very drastically, isn't it? Very, very soon. In these first nine verses here, there's a test, isn't there? There's a test for Egypt. Has Pharaoh and have Egypt finally given up the idea that they own Israel? Have they really given that up? Or will they one last time try and keep hold of them and keep them under oppression? And for Israel, there's a test too. Do they really trust God that he has the measure and the beating of Pharaoh? That their security, their safety, lies not in trusting and appeasing Pharaoh and now going back to him and submitting to him, but in trusting God who has set out to destroy this Pharaoh. There's a test of their metal, isn't there? In the midst of trouble, will they look to God and trust in God rather than their own insight? And in verses 10 to 20, we see them second-guessing, don't we? Sometimes in life, it's just better not to look, isn't it? If you're afraid of something and you have to face it, sometimes it's better not to look too closely, isn't it? I thought I would maybe be mean and put up some pictures of common phobias, but then I thought that would, that would be really unfair of me, wouldn't it, to do that to you? So I refrained. But <laughs> let me tell you, I'm, I'm not very keen on heights. I've mentioned it to you before, I'm sure. 
I've probably mentioned to you before about having locked myself out of our flat once years ago and so having to borrow a ladder and to climb up sort of several stories up over the balcony and in sort of through the balcony where I'd left one door open and just how difficult that really was for me in that moment uh, there was you know no one to help me or anything else so I just had to get on with it and I spent ages looking like an absolute idiot halfway up the ladder having looked down and realised this is really high or at least this is really high for me I think I don't know if I've really got it what it takes to to get all the way up and then even as you sort of get up realising I have to climb higher than the balcony (laughs) and even find these next three or four rungs are even more depressing and, and challenging for me It would have been far better, perhaps, if I could have just scaled as quick as I could without thinking or looking at all, wouldn't it? But the fear set in as I looked down at the height. And fear sets in for Israel as they look up to the Egyptians here, as they look away from God and they second-guess him. There's a sight that fills them with fear, isn't it? It's that plain of dust that rises as the Egyptian chariots start to break the horizon line. And the reality of what they may now face in just minutes sets in. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out, to the Lord. This is more than just a cry of desperation, though, isn't it? Because look at how it continues. Because it gives us a bit more detail to what this cry was like. Verse 11 They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It's more than a cry of desperation. It's an accusation, isn't it? It's much like chapter 5 and after the straw was removed and they still had to make the same amount of bricks but much more challenging conditions. And back then Moses caved, didn't he? And he asked God, why have you done this? But are they right? Are they right to say it would have been better for us to have served the Egyptians than die out here? Of course, then not, are they? But then why do they say it? I could maybe begin to answer that question by asking some different questions. This may get uncomfortable. But why does the abused woman struggle to leave the partner who beats, berates, belittles, and controls her? Why does the alcoholic struggle to leave the bottle when it ruins their relationships and steals their health? Why can't a depressed person simply snap out of it and feel better as much as they would love to? Why does the one with an eating disorder struggle to just stop when it fills them with shame and dissatisfaction? 
Why does the porn addict struggle to stop despite living in shame, sexual dysfunction and loneliness? Why can't the workaholic drop what they say they do for their family when they simply no longer see their family anymore? Why can't the people pleaser stop breaking their back for the approval of unessential acquaintances? Because sometimes it's just not so easy to walk away from your abuser, your imprisoner, and into freedom. It's not always as easy as that, is it? And do we dare admit that this might be us too? that we might be a lot more like the Israelites than we might like to admit. That we might feel too. It would have been better for us to have served the Egyptians than to come out here to the unknown. But look at Moses' response, because it's very, very different to chapter 5 when he caved in and he too cried out to God and accused him. Look at how he responds Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Things as they stand are not how they will stay. That's what he's saying. And God will fight, and you will watch. Because your security does not rest in your ability to defend yourself. But God's ability to do his own work. And it looks like Moses is handling this situation so much better than chapter 5. But 15, verse 15 here maybe tells us that Moses feared too. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forwards. And so it's a wonderfully realistic picture because their leader hasn't suddenly got perfect. He's still fundamentally flawed in some ways because your security does not rest in the strength of character or body of your leader, but of your God. So then, here are the simple instructions. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Tell the people to move forwards and part the sea. Because, oh yeah, obviously. Yeah, that that would be the way to sort of move headlong towards the water. And trust me that I'll move it. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. We hear what God will do. He's going to harden hearts. He's going to cover the Egyptians here. He's going to save them from out of their hands. And why? He's going to do it. He's doing it to get glory over Pharaoh. And then we see that protection for them through the night in verse 19 to 22. You see, the fear of the Israelites was understandable and yet unnecessary. 
because God had a plan in place, even if it was scary and even if it was uncertain to them. And so the call is not to look to Egypt, but to keep their eyes on God to rescue them from Pharaoh. There's a test of their metal, they second guess, and then there's the miraculous salvation we see from verse 21 to 31. We see him there miraculously saving, using the natural order, parting the sea, holding it up before them that they might go through on dry land. And yet that scary chase from the Egyptians in verse 23, the Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. But look in verse 24, there's a clever play on words that goes on here. In the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. Israel had just moments before been looking up and caught glimpse of the Egyptians and feared. But God had to look down to see mighty Egypt. There's a play on words. It reverses the position of power here. God has to come and look down to see Pharaoh and his mighty chariots because the might of chariots is no match for the might of God. And even Egypt see this, don't they? Threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They recognize what's really happening. They're not just fighting Israel. They're fighting the living God. The Lord fights for them. And as God had said, he would be acknowledged that he is over Pharaoh. And then we see the action, don't we? The Lord said to Moses, verse 26, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And then all the characters are active. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Or in fact, actually, the word there could be shook off. He shook them off into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. It's the same language as the plagues, isn't it? That it makes it clear this isn't just a case of uh, unfortunate events or bad luck. Not one of them remained. And all the while, Israel walked through on dry land. They are protected. And so then we get that summary in verse 30 and 31. 
A summary of all of this momentous salvation that God had brought them. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God had saved the people of Israel from the hand of the Egyptians by his own strong hand. And in the last chapter, we were reminded of that several times, that he would save with his strong hand. And now, Pharaoh has had a sight that kindled his anger. The Israelites had a sight that stoked their fear. Now, the Israelites have a sight that rewires their fear away from Pharaoh and his dead army to the living God who massacred them. And the point is very simple and very clear. It's not to fear chariots, but to fear the God who shakes off chariots. Jesus picks up some of this idea of rewiring where your fear lies In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, he's recorded as saying, Don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Here is a very powerful visual for Israel, isn't it? They witness the Egyptians dead on the shore. And I think this is an image that God wants them to take in and to remember. That when you take God on, God wins. That the power of God is so much greater than the power of the earth in Pharaoh. Here are these people who have so oppressed you and seems so powerful, dead across the shore. The story of Exodus is about God leading his people to freedom. And we've said that true freedom isn't being free to rule over yourself, but being free to live under God's gracious rule. And to do that, God frees Israel from the grips of an evil ruler holding them in slavery. But notice what God doesn't ask them to do in order to get freedom. He doesn't ask them to earn it. He doesn't, in fact, ask them to do anything. He is giving it because he is willing and able to give it. And look at what God does ask them. There's three things there from verse 13 to 15. He asks that they trust him. Look at verse 13. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he'll work for you. Trust him. Secondly, shut up. Look at verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Trust him, shut up, and walk. Look at verse 15. 
tell the people of Israel to go forwards. The rescue does not depend on your ability to earn it or your strength to keep it up. So that is a real hope. And this is a picture of what God is always doing and would ultimately do for us in defeating sin through Jesus. We have in the gospel, as Israel have had in the Passover, a promise and a pattern of rescue. That God saves you and I from the clutches of eternal death due to sin by Jesus himself dying for you. A lamb's life for your life. Jesus being the Passover lamb who was slain for your sin. John's first recognition of him amongst the crowds is, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of man. Killed in your place for your sin against a holy God. But we, like Israel, have to come to the Red Sea too. There comes a moment where our feet must leave the shore and step into the seabed, where we must give up any last idea of saving ourselves and trust our lives into God's hands. To trust that, in direct opposition to the message of the world, we are not enough. We are not enough to satisfy God's perfect demands, and nothing we ever will do will be, nor can it be, but... Jesus, and Jesus alone, is. Without him, we would be hopeless, but with him, we could not be more accepted. There is no way that we could possibly be any more enough through Christ. So that as we place our feet on the seabed and feel the reeds between our toes... That wall of water that encompasses us, of sin, of shame, of judgment, won't come crashing down on top of us. That Jesus' perfection on your behalf means his sacrifice will save us from the hold of sin. That we will place our toes back on the opposite shoreline and look back on our sin vanquished on the beach for us and so what would God have us do trust him shut up and walk let's pray